Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Stern with him, and so determined not to let him have more of it to waste, if they could help it, that he was at his wit's end for some, and tried so shamelessly to get all he could from his subjects, by excuses or by force, that the people used to say the king was the sturdiest beggar in England. He took the cross, thinking to get some money by that means, but, as it was very well known that he never meant to go on a crusade, he got none. In all this contention, the Londoners were particularly keen against the king, and the king hated them warmly in return. Hating or loving, however, made no difference. He continued in the same condition for nine or ten years. When at last the baron said that if he would solemnly confirm their liberties afresh, the parliament would vote him a large sum, as he readily consented, there was a great meeting held in Westminster Hall, one pleasant day in May, when all the clergy, dressed in their robes and holding every one of them a burning candle in his hand, stood up, the barons being also there, while the Archbishop of Canterbury read the sentence of excommunication against any man and all men who should henceforth in any way infringe the great charter of the kingdom. When he had done, they all put out their burning candles with a curse upon the soul of any one and every one who should merit that sentence. The king concluded with an oath to keep the charter, as I am a man, as I am a Christian, as I am a knight, as I am a king. It was easy to make oaths, and easy to break them, and the king did both, as his father had done before him. He took to his old courses again when he was supplied with money, and soon cured of their weakness the few who had ever really trusted him. When his money was gone, and he was once more borrowing and begging everywhere with a meanness worthy of his nature, he got into a difficulty with the Pope respecting the crown of Sicily, which the Pope said he had a right to give away, and which he offered to King Henry for his second son, Prince Edmund. But if you or I give away what we have not got, and what belongs to somebody else, it is likely that the person to whom we give it will have some trouble in taking it. It was exactly so in this case. It was necessary to conquer the Sicilian crown before it could be put upon young Edmund's head. It could not be conquered without money. The Pope ordered the clergy to raise money. The clergy, however, were not so obedient to him as usual. They had been disputing with him for some time about his unjust preference of Italian priests in England, and they had begun to doubt whether the king's chaplain, whom he allowed to be paid for preaching in seven hundred churches, could possibly be, even by the Pope's favour, in seven hundred places at once. The Pope and the King together, said the Bishop of London, may take the mitre off my head, but if they do, they will find that I shall put on a soldier's helmet. I pay nothing. The Bishop of Worcester was as bold as the Bishop of London, and would pay nothing either. 
such sums as the more timid or the more helpless of the clergy did raise were squandered away, without doing any good to the king, or bringing the Sicilian crown an inch nearer to Prince Edmund's head. The end of the business was that the Pope gave the crown to the brother of the King of France, who conquered it for himself, and sent the King of England in a bill of one hundred thousand pounds for the expenses of not having won it. The King was now so much distressed that we might almost pity him, if it were possible to pity a king so shabby and ridiculous. His clever brother, Richard, had bought the title of King of the Romans from the German people, and was no longer near him to help him with advice. The clergy, resisting the very Pope, were in alliance with the barons. The barons were headed by Simon de Montfort, Earl of Leicester, married to King Henry's sister, and, though a foreigner himself, the most popular man in England against the foreign favourites. When the king next met his parliament, the barons, led by this earl, came before him, armed from head to foot, and cased in armour. When the parliament again assembled, in a month's time, at Oxford, this earl was at their head, and the king was obliged to consent, on oath, to what was called a committee of government, consisting of twenty-four members, twelve chosen by the barons, and twelve chosen by himself. But, at a good time for him, his brother Richard came back. Richard's first act, the barons would not admit him into England on other terms, was to swear to be faithful to the committee of government, which he immediately began to oppose with all his might. Then the barons began to quarrel among themselves, especially the proud Earl of Gloucester with the Earl of Leicester, who went abroad in disgust. Then the people began to be dissatisfied with the barons, because they did not do enough for them. The king's chances seemed so good again at length, that he took heart enough, or caught it from his brother, to tell the committee of government that he abolished them, as to his oath, never mind that, the Pope said, and to seize all the money in the mint, and to shut himself up in the Tower of London. Here he was joined by his eldest son, Prince Edward, and, from the Tower, he made public a letter of the popes to the world in general, informing all men that he had been an excellent and just king for five and forty years. As everybody knew he had been nothing of the sort, nobody cared much for this document. It so chanced that the proud Earl of Gloucester dying was succeeded by his son, and that his son, instead of being the enemy of the Earl of Leicester, was, for the time, his friend. It fell out, therefore, that these two earls joined their forces, took several of the royal castles in the country, and advanced as hard as they could on London. The London people, always opposed to the king, declared for them with great joy. The king himself remained shut up, not at all gloriously, in the tower. Prince Edward made the best of his way to Windsor Castle. His mother, the queen, attempted to follow him by water, but the people seeing her barge rowing up the river, and hated her with all their hearts, ran to London Bridge, got together a quantity of stones and mud, and pelted the barge as it came through, crying furiously, Drown the witch! Drown her! They were so near doing it, that the mayor took the old lady under his protection, and shut her up in St. Paul's until the danger was past. It would require a great deal of writing on my part, and a great deal of reading on yours, 
to follow the king through his disputes with the barons, and to follow the barons through their disputes with one another. So I will make short work of it for both of us, and only relate the chief events that arose out of these quarrels. The good king of France was asked to decide between them. He gave it as his opinion that the king must maintain the great charter, and that the barons must give up the committee of government, and all the rest that had been done by the Parliament at Oxford, which the Royalists, or King's Party, scornfully called the Mad Parliament. The barons declared that these were not fair terms, and they would not accept them. Then they caused the great bell of St. Paul's to be tolled, for the purpose of rousing up the London people, who armed themselves at the dismal sound and formed quite an army in the streets. I am sorry to say, however, that instead of falling upon the king's party with whom their quarrel was, they fell upon the miserable Jews, and killed at least five hundred of them. They pretended that some of these Jews were on the king's side, and that they kept hidden in their houses, for the destruction of the people, a certain terrible composition called Greek fire, which could not be put out with water, but only burnt the fiercer for it. What they really did keep in their houses was money, and this their cruel enemies wanted, and this their cruel enemies took, like robbers and murderers. The Earl of Leicester put himself at the head of these Londoners and other forces, and followed the king to Lewes in Sussex, where he lay encamped with his army. Before giving the king's forces battle here, the earl addressed his soldiers, and said that King Henry Third had broken so many oaths, that he had become the enemy of God, and therefore they would wear white crosses on their breasts as if they were arrayed, not against a fellow-Christian, but against a Turk. White-crossed accordingly, they rushed into the fight. They would have lost the day, the king having on his side all the foreigners in England, and from Scotland, John Common, John Balliol, and Robert Bruce, with all their men, but for the impatience of Prince Edward, who, in his hot desire to have vengeance on the people of London, threw the whole of his father's army into confusion. He was taken prisoner, so was the king, so was the king's brother, the king of the Romans, and five thousand Englishmen were left dead upon the bloody grass. For this success, the Pope excommunicated the Earl of Leicester, which neither the Earl nor the people cared at all about. The people loved him and supported him, and he became the real king, having all the power of the government in his own hands, though he was outwardly respectful to King Henry III, whom he took with him wherever he went, like a poor old limp court card. He summoned a parliament in the year 1265, which was the first parliament in England that the people had any real share in electing, and he drew more and more in favour with the people every day, and they stood by him in whatever he did. Many of the other barons, and particularly the Earl of Gloucester, who had become by this time as proud as his father, grew jealous of this powerful and popular earl, who was proud too, and began to conspire against him. Since the Battle of Lewes, Prince Edward had been kept as a hostage, and, though he was otherwise treated like a prince, had never been allowed to go out without attendance appointed by the Earl of Leicester who watched him. The conspiring lords found means to propose to him, in secret, 
that they should assist him to escape, and should make him their leader, to which he very heartily consented. So, on a day that was agreed upon, he said to his attendants after dinner, being then at Hereford, I should like to ride on horseback this fine afternoon, a little way into the country, as they, too, thought it would be very pleasant to have a canter in the sunshine, they all rode out of the town together in a gay little troop. When they came to a fine level piece of turf, the prince fell to comparing their horses one with another, and offering bets that one was faster than another, and the attendants, suspecting no harm, rode galloping matches until their horses were quite tired. The prince rode no matches himself, but looked on from his saddle, and staked his money. Thus they passed the whole merry afternoon. Now the sun was setting, and they were all going slowly up a hill. The prince's horse, very fresh, and all the other horses, very weary, when a strange rider, mounted on a grey steed, appeared at the top of the hill, and waved his hat. "'What does the fellow mean?' said the attendants, one to another. The prince answered on the instant, by setting spurs to his horse, dashing away at his utmost speed, joining the man, riding into the midst of a little crowd of horsemen, who were then seen waiting under some trees, and who closed around him, and so he departed in a cloud of dust, leaving the road empty of all but the baffled attendants, who sat looking at one another, while their horses drooped their ears and panted. The prince joined the Earl of Gloucester at Ludlow, the Earl of Leicester with a part of the army, and the stupid old king was at Hereford. One of the Earl of Leicester's sons, Simon de Montfort, with another part of the army, was in Sussex. To prevent these two parts from uniting was the prince's first object. He attacked Simon de Montfort by night, defeated him, seized his banners and treasure, and forced him into Kenilworth Castle in Warwickshire, which belonged to his family. His father, the Earl of Leicester, in the meanwhile, not knowing what had happened, marched out of Hereford, with his part of the army and the king, to meet him. He came, on a bright morning in August, to Evesham, which is watered by the pleasant river Avon. Looking rather anxiously across the prospect toward Kenilworth, he saw his own banners advancing, and his face brightened with joy. But, it clouded darkly when he presently perceived that the banners were captured, and in the enemy's hands, and he said, It is over. The Lord have mercy on our souls, for our bodies are Prince Edward's. He fought like a true knight, nevertheless. When his horse was killed under him, he fought on foot. It was a fierce battle, and the dead lay in heaps everywhere. The old king, stuck up in a suit of armour on a big war horse, which didn't mind him at all, with which carried him into all sorts of places where he didn't want to go, got into everybody's way, and very nearly got knocked on the head by one of his son's men. But he managed to pipe out, I am Harry of Winchester, and the prince, who heard him, seized his bridle, and took him out of peril. The Earl of Leicester still fought bravely, until his best son Henry was killed, and the bodies of his best friends choked his path, and then he fell, still fighting, sword in hand. They mangled his body, and sent it as a present to a noble lady, but a very unpleasant lady, I should think, who was the wife of his worst enemy. 
they could not mangle his memory in the minds of the faithful people, though. Many years afterwards they loved him more than ever, and regarded him as a saint, and always spoke of him as Sir Simon the Righteous. And even though he was dead, the cause for which he had fought still lived, and was strong, and forced itself upon the king in the very hour of victory. Henry found himself obliged to respect the great charter, however much he hated it, and to make laws similar to the laws of the great Earl of Leicester, and to be moderate and forgiving towards the people at last, even towards the people of London, who had so long opposed him. There were more risings before all this was done, but they were set at rest by these means, and Prince Edward did his best in all things to restore peace. One Sir Adam de Gordon was the last dissatisfied knight in arms, but the prince vanquished him in a single combat, in a wood, and nobly gave him his life, and became his friend, instead of slaying him. Sir Adam was not ungrateful. He ever afterwards remained devoted to his generous conqueror. When the troubles of the kingdom were thus calmed, Prince Edward and his cousin Henry took the cross, and went away to the Holy Land, with many English lords and knights. Four years afterwards the King of the Romans died, and next year, 1272, his brother, the weak King of England, died. He was sixty-eight years old then, and had reigned fifty-six years. He was as much of a king in death as he had ever been in life. He was the mere pale shadow of a king at all times. End of chapter 15「Chapter sixteen of A Child's History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Robin Cotter, June two thousand seven. A Child's History of England by Charles Dickens. Chapter 16 England under Edward I, called Longshanks. It was now the year of our Lord, 1272, and Prince Edward, the heir to the throne, being away in the Holy Land, knew nothing of his father's death. The barons, however, proclaimed him king, immediately after the royal funeral, and the people very willingly consented since most men knew too well by this time what the horrors of a contest for the crown were. So King Edward I called, in a not very complimentary manner, Longshanks, because of the slenderness of his legs, was peacefully accepted by the English nation. His legs had need to be strong, however long and thin they were, for they had to support him through many difficulties on the fiery sands of Asia, where his small force of soldiers fainted, died, deserted, and seemed to melt away. But his prowess made light of it, and he said, I will go on, if I go on with no other follower than my groom. A prince of this spirit gave the Turks a deal of trouble. He stormed Nazareth, at which place, of all places on earth, I am sorry to relate, he made a frightful slaughter of innocent people, and then he went to Acre, where he got a truce of ten years from the sultan. He had very nearly lost his life in Acre, through the treachery of a Saracen noble, called the Emir of Jaffa, who, making the pretense that he had some idea of turning Christian, and wanted to know all about that religion, sent a trusty messenger to Edward very often, with a dagger in his sleeve. At last, one Friday in Whitson week, when it was very hot, and all the sandy prospect lay beneath the blazing sun, burnt up like a great overdone biscuit, and Edward was lying on a couch, 
dressed for coolness in only a loose robe, the messenger, with his chocolate-colored face, and his bright, dark eyes and white teeth, came creeping in with a letter, and kneeled down like a tame tiger. But the moment Edward stretched out his hand to take the letter, the tiger made a spring at his heart. He was quick, but Edward was quick, too. He seized the traitor by his chocolate throat, threw him to the ground, and slew him with the very dagger he had drawn. The weapon had struck Edward in the arm, and although the wound itself was slight, it threatened to be mortal, for the blade of the dagger had been smeared with poison. Thanks, however, to a better surgeon than was often to be found in those times, and to some wholesome herbs, and above all to his faithful wife Eleanor, who devotedly nursed him, and is said by some to have sucked the poison from the wound with her own red lips, which I am very willing to believe, Edward soon recovered, and was sound again. As the king his father had sent entreaties to him to return home, he now began the journey. He had got as far as Italy when he met messengers who brought him intelligence of the king's death. Hearing that all was quiet at home, he made no haste to return to his own dominions, but paid a visit to the Pope, and went in state through various Italian towns, where he was welcomed with acclamations as a mighty champion of the cross from the Holy Land, and where he received presents of purple mantles and prancing horses, and went along in great triumph. The shouting people little knew that he was the last English monarch who would ever embark in a crusade, or that within twenty years every conquest which the Christians had made in the Holy Land, at the cost of so much blood, would be won back by the Turks. But all this came to pass. There was, and there is, an old town standing in a plain in France, called Chalon. When the king was coming towards this place on his way to England, a wily French lord, called the Count of Chalon, sent him a polite challenge to come with his knights and hold a fair tournament with the Count and his knights, and make a day of it with sword and lance. It was represented to the king that the Count of Chalon was not to be trusted, and that, instead of a holiday fight for mere show, and in good humour, he secretly meant a real battle, in which the English should be defeated by superior force. The king, however, nothing afraid, went to the appointed place on the appointed day, with a thousand followers. When the count came with two thousand, and attacked the English in earnest, the English rushed at them with such valour that the count's men and the count's horses soon began to be tumbled down all over the field. The count himself seized the king round the neck, but the king tumbled him out of his saddle in return for the compliment, and, jumping from his own horse, and standing over him, beat away at his iron armour like a blacksmith hammering on his anvil. Even when the count owned himself defeated and offered his sword, the king would not do him the honour to take it but made him yield it up to a common soldier. There had been such fury shown in this fight that it was afterwards called the Little Battle of Chalon. The English were very well disposed to be proud of their king after these adventures, so when he landed at Dover in the year 1274, being then thirty-six years old, and went on to Westminster, where he and his good queen were crowned with great magnificence, splendid rejoicings took place. For the coronation feast there were provided, among other eatables, four hundred oxen, four hundred sheep, four hundred and fifty pigs, eighteen wild boars, three hundred flitches of bacon, and twenty thousand fowls. The fountains and conduits in the street flowed with red and white wine instead of water. The rich citizens hung silks and cloths of the brightest colours out of their windows to increase the beauty of the show and threw out gold and silver by whole handfuls, to make scrambles for the crowd. In short, there was such eating and drinking, such music and capering, such a ringing of bells and tossing of caps, such a shouting and singing and revelling, as the narrow overhanging streets of old London City had not witnessed for many a long day. All the people were merry, except the poor Jews, who, trembling within their houses, and scarcely daring to peep out, began to foresee that they would have to find the money for this joviality sooner or later. To dismiss this sad subject of the Jews for the present, I am sorry to add that in this reign they were most unmercifully pillaged. They were hanged in great numbers, on accusations of having clipped the king's coin, 
which all kinds of people had done. They were heavily taxed, they were disgracefully badged, they were, on one day, thirteen years after the coronation, taken up with their wives and children, and thrown into beastly prisons, until they purchased their release by paying to the king twelve thousand pounds. Finally, every kind of property belonging to them was seized by the king, except so little as would defray the charge of their taking themselves away into foreign countries. Many years elapsed before the hope of gain induced any of their race to return to England, where they had been treated so heartlessly, and had suffered so much. If King Edward I had been as bad a king to Christians as he was to Jews, he would have been bad indeed. But he was, in general, a wise and great monarch, under whom the country much improved. He had no love for the great charter, few kings had, through many, many years, but he had high qualities. The first bold object which he conceived when he came home was to unite under one sovereign England, Scotland, and Wales, the two last of which countries had each a little king of its own, about whom the people were always quarrelling and fighting, and making a prodigious disturbance, a great deal more than he was worth. In the course of King Edward's reign he was engaged, besides, in a war with France. To make these quarrels clearer, we will separate their histories, and take them thus. Wales first, France second, Scotland third. Llewellyn was the Prince of Wales. He had been on the side of the barons in the reign of the stupid old king, but had afterwards sworn allegiance to him. When King Edward came to the throne, Llewellyn was required to swear allegiance to him also, which he refused to do. The king being crowned, and in his own dominions, three times more required Llewellyn to come and do homage, and three times more Llewellyn said he would rather not. He was going to be married to Eleanor de Montfort, a young lady of the family mentioned in the last reign, and it chanced that this young lady, coming from France with her youngest brother Emmerich, was taken by an English ship, and was ordered by the English king to be detained. Upon this the quarrel came to a head. The king went with his fleet to the coast of Wales, where, so encompassing Llewellyn, that he could only take refuge in the bleak mountain of Snowdon, in which no provisions could reach him, he was soon starved into an apology, and into a treaty of peace, and into paying the expenses of the war. The king, however, forgave him some of the hardest conditions of the treaty, and consented to his marriage, and he now thought he had reduced Wales to obedience. But the Welsh, although they were naturally a gentle, quiet, pleasant people, who liked to receive strangers in their cottages among the mountains, and to set before them with free hospitality whatever they had to eat and drink, and to play to them on their harps, and sing their native ballads to them, were a people of great spirit when their blood was up. Englishmen, after this affair, began to be insolent in Wales, and to assume the air of masters, and the Welsh pride could not bear it. Moreover, they believed in that unlucky old Merlin, some of whose unlucky old prophecies somebody always seemed doomed to remember when there was a chance of its doing harm. And just at this time some blind old gentleman with a harp and a long white beard, who was an excellent person, but had become of an unknown age and tedious, burst out with a declaration that Merlin had predicted that when English money had become round, a Prince of Wales would be crowned in London. Now King Edward had recently forbidden the English penny to be cut into halves and quarters for halfpence and farthings, and had actually introduced a round coin. Therefore the Welsh people said this was the time Merlin meant, and rose accordingly. King Edward had brought over Prince David, Llewellyn's brother, by heaping favours upon him. But he was the first to revolt, being perhaps troubled in his conscience. One stormy night he surprised the castle of Howarden, in possession of which an English nobleman had been left, killed the whole garrison, and carried off the nobleman, a prisoner to Snowdon. Upon this the Welsh people rose like one man, King Edward with his army, marching from Worcester to the Menai Strait, crossed it, near to where the wonderful tubular iron bridge now, in days so different, makes a passage for railway trains, by a bridge of boats that enabled forty men to march abreast. He subdued the island of Anglesey, and sent his men forward to observe the enemy. The sudden appearance of the Welsh created a panic among them, 
and they fell back to the bridge. The tide had in the meantime risen and separated the boats. The Welsh pursuing them, they were driven into the sea, and there they sunk, in their heavy iron armor, by thousands. After this victory Llewellyn, helped by the severe winter weather of Wales, gained another battle, but the king, ordering a portion of his English army to advance through South Wales, and catch him between two foes, and Llewellyn bravely turning to meet this new enemy, he was surprised and killed, very meanly, for he was unarmed and defenceless. His head was struck off and sent to London, where it was fixed upon the tower, encircled with a wreath, some say of ivy, some say of willow, some say of silver, to make it look like a ghastly coin in ridicule of the prediction. David, however, still held out for six months, though eagerly sought after by the king, and hunted by his own countrymen. One of them finally betrayed him with his wife and children. He was sentenced to be hanged, drawn, and quartered, and from that time this became the established punishment of traitors in England, a punishment wholly without excuse, as being revolting, vile, and cruel, after its object is dead, and which has no sense in it, as its only real degradation, and that nothing can blot out, is to the country that permits on any consideration such abominable barbarity. Wales was now subdued, the queen giving birth to a young prince in the castle of Carnarvon. The king showed him to the Welsh people as their countryman, and called him Prince of Wales, a title that has ever since been borne by the heir apparent to the English throne, which that little prince soon became by the death of his elder brother. The king did better things for the Welsh than that, by improving their laws and encouraging their trade. Disturbances still took place, chiefly occasioned by the avarice and pride of the English lords, on whom Welsh lands and castles had been bestowed. But they were subdued, and the country never rose again. There is a legend that to prevent the people from being incited to rebellion by the songs of their bards and harpers, Edward had them all put to death. Some of them may have fallen among other men who held out against the king, but this general slaughter is, I think, a fancy of the harpers themselves, who, I dare say, made a song about it many years afterwards, and sang it by the Welsh firesides, until it came to be believed. The foreign war of the reign of Edward I arose in this way. The crews of two vessels, one a Norman ship, and the other an English ship, happened to go to the same place in their boats, to fill their casks with fresh water. Being rough, angry fellows, they began to quarrel, and then to fight, the English with their fists, the Normans with their knives, and in the fight a Norman was killed. The Norman crew, instead of revenging themselves upon those English sailors with whom they had quarrelled, who were too strong for them, I suspect, took to their ship again in a great rage, attacked the first English ship they met, laid hold of an unoffending merchant who happened to be on board, and brutally hanged him in the rigging of their own vessel, with a dog at his feet. This so enraged the English sailors, that there was no restraining them, and whenever, and wherever, English sailors met Norman sailors, they fell upon each other tooth and nail. The Irish and Dutch sailors took part with the English, the French and Guianese sailors helped the Normans and thus the greater part of the mariners sailing over the sea became in their way as violent and raging as the sea itself when it is disturbed. King Edward's fame had been so high abroad that he had been chosen to decide a difference between France and another foreign power, and had lived upon the continent three years. At first neither he nor the French King Philip, the good Louis had been dead some time, interfered in these quarrels, but when a fleet of eighty English ships engaged and utterly defeated a Norman fleet of two hundred, in a pitched battle fought round a ship at anchor, in which no quarter was given, the matter became too serious to be passed over. King Edward, as Duke of Guienne, was summoned to present himself before the King of France, at Paris, and answer for the damage done by his sailor subjects. At first he sent the Bishop of London as his representative, and then his brother Edmund, who was married to the French Queen's mother. I am afraid Edmund was an easy man, and allowed himself to be talked over by his charming relations, the French court ladies. At all events he was induced to give up his brother's dukedom for forty days, 
as a mere form, the French king said, to satisfy his honour, and he was so very much astonished, when the time was out, to find that the French king had no idea of giving it up again, that I should not wonder if it hastened his death, which soon took place. King Edward was a king to win his foreign dukedom back, if it could be won by energy and valour. He raised a large army, renounced his allegiance as Duke of Guienne, and crossed the sea to carry war into France. Before any important battle was fought, however, a truce was agreed upon for two years, and in the course of that time the Pope effected a reconciliation. King Edward, who was now a widower, having lost his affectionate and good wife Eleanor, married the French king's sister, Margaret, and the Prince of Wales was contracted to the French king's daughter, Isabella. Out of bad things, good things sometimes arise. Out of this hanging of the innocent merchant, and the bloodshed and strife it caused, there came to be established one of the greatest powers that the English people now possess. The preparations for the war being very expensive, and King Edward greatly wanting money, and being very arbitrary in his ways of raising it, some of the barons began firmly to oppose him. Two of them, in particular, Humphrey Bohun, Earl of Hereford, and Roger Bigod, Earl of Norfolk, were so stout against him that they maintained he had no right to command them to head his forces in Guienne, and flatly refused to go there. "'By heaven, Sir Earl,' said the king to the Earl of Hereford, in a great passion, "'you shall either go or be hanged.' "'By heaven, Sir King,' replied the Earl, "'I will neither go, nor yet will I be hanged.' And both he and the other Earl sturdily left the court, attended by many lords. The king tried every means of raising money. He taxed the clergy, in spite of all the Pope said to the contrary, and when they refused to pay, reduced them to submission, by saying, Very well, then they had no claim upon the government for protection, and any man might plunder them who would, which a good many men were very ready to do, and very readily did, and which the clergy found too losing a game to be played at long. He seized all the wool and leather in the hands of the merchants, promising to pay for it some fine day, and he set a tax upon the exportation of wool, which was so unpopular among the traders that it was called the evil toll. But all would not do. The barons, led by those two great earls, declared any taxes imposed without the consent of Parliament unlawful, and the Parliament refused to impose taxes, until the King should confirm afresh the two great charters, and should solemnly declare in writing that there was no power in the country to raise money from the people evermore, but the power of Parliament representing all ranks of the people. The King was very unwilling to diminish his own power by allowing this great privilege in the Parliament, but there was no help for it, and he at last complied. We shall come to another king by and by, who might have saved his head from rolling off, if he had profited by this example. The people gained other benefits in Parliament, from the good sense and wisdom of this king. Many of the laws were much improved, provision was made for the greater safety of travellers, and the apprehension of thieves and murderers, the priests were prevented from holding too much land, and so becoming too powerful, and justices of the peace were first appointed though not at first under that name, in various parts of the country. And now we come to Scotland, which was the great and lasting trouble of the reign of King Edward I. About thirteen years after King Edward's coronation, Alexander III, the King of Scotland, died of a fall from his horse. He had been married to Margaret, King Edward's sister. All their children being dead, the Scottish crown became the right of a young princess, only eight years old, the daughter of Eric, king of Norway, who had married a daughter of the deceased sovereign. King Edward proposed that the maiden of Norway, as this princess was called, should be engaged to be married to his eldest son. But unfortunately, as she was coming over to England, she fell sick, and landing on one of the Orkney Islands, died there. A great commotion immediately began in Scotland, whereas many as thirteen noisy claimants to the vacant throne started up and made a general confusion. King Edward, being much renowned for his sagacity and justice, it seems to have been agreed to refer the dispute to him. 
He accepted the trust, and went with an army to the borderland, where England and Scotland joined. There he called upon the Scottish gentlemen to meet him at the castle of Norham, on the English side of the river Tweed, and to that castle they came. But before he would take any step in the business, he required those Scottish gentlemen, one and all, to do homage to him as their superior lord, and when they hesitated, he said, By holy Edward, whose crown I wear, I will have my rights, or I will die in maintaining them. The Scottish gentlemen, who had not expected this, were disconcerted, and asked for three weeks to think about it. At the end of three weeks, another meeting took place, on a green plain on the Scottish side of the river. Of all the competitors for the Scottish throne, there were only two who had any real claim, in right of their near kindred to the royal family. These were John Balliol and Robert Bruce, and the right was, I have no doubt, on the side of John Balliol. At this particular meeting, John Balliol was not present, but Robert Bruce was, and on Robert Bruce being formally asked whether he acknowledged the King of England for his superior lord, he answered, plainly and distinctly, yes, he did. Next day John Balliol appeared, and said the same. This point settled, some arrangements were made for inquiring into their titles. The inquiry occupied a pretty long time, more than a year. While it was going on, King Edward took the opportunity of making a journey through Scotland, and calling upon the Scottish people of all degrees to acknowledge themselves his vassals, or be imprisoned until they did. In the meanwhile, commissioners were appointed to conduct the inquiry. A parliament was held at Berwick about it. The two claimants were heard at full length, and there was a vast amount of talking. At last, in the great hall of the castle of Berwick, the king gave judgment in favour of John Balliol, who, consenting to receive his crown by the king of England's favour and permission, was crowned at Scone, in an old stone chair which had been used for ages in the abbey there, at the coronations of Scottish kings. Then King Edward caused the great seal of Scotland, used since the late king's death, to be broken in four pieces, and placed in the English treasury, and considered that he now had Scotland, according to the common saying, under his thumb. Scotland had a strong will of its own yet, however. King Edward, determined that the Scottish king should not forget he was his vassal, summoned him repeatedly to come and defend himself and his judges before the English Parliament, when appeals from the decisions of Scottish courts of justice were being heard. At length John Balliol, who had no great heart of his own, had so much heart put into him by the brave spirit of the Scottish people, who took this as a national insult, that he refused to come any more. Thereupon the king further required him to help him in his war abroad, which was then in progress, and to give up, as security for his good behaviour in future, the three strong Scottish castles of Jedburgh, Roxburgh, and Berwick. Nothing of this being done— on the contrary, the Scottish people concealing their king among their mountains in the highlands, and showing a determination to resist, Edward marched to Berwick with an army of thirty thousand foot and four thousand horse, took the castle, and slew its whole garrison and the inhabitants of the town as well, men, women, and children. Lord Warren, Earl of Surrey, then went on to the castle of Dunbar, before which a battle was fought, and the whole Scottish army defeated with great slaughter. The victory being complete, the Earl of Surrey was left as guardian of Scotland. The principal offices in that kingdom were given to Englishmen. The more powerful Scottish nobles were obliged to come and live in England. The Scottish crown and sceptre were brought away, and even the old stone chair was carried off and placed in Westminster Abbey, where you may see it now. Balliol had the Tower of London lent him for a residence, with permission to range about it within a circle of twenty miles. Three years afterwards he was allowed to go to Normandy, where he had estates, and where he passed the remaining six years of his life, far more happily, I dare say, than he had lived for a long while in angry Scotland. Now there was, in the west of Scotland, a gentleman of small fortune named William Wallace, the second son of a Scottish knight. He was a man of great size and great strength. He was very brave and daring. When he spoke to a body of his countrymen, he could rouse them in a wonderful manner by the power of his burning words. He loved Scotland dearly, 
and he hated England with his utmost might. The domineering conduct of the English, who now held the places of trust in Scotland, made them as intolerable to the proud Scottish people as they had been, under similar circumstances, to the Welsh. And no man in all Scotland regarded them with so much smothered rage as William Wallace. One day an Englishman in office, little knowing what he was, affronted him. Wallace instantly struck him dead, and taking refuge among the rocks and hills, and there joining with his countryman, Sir William Douglas, who was also in arms against King Edward, became the most resolute and undaunted champion of a people struggling for their independence that ever lived upon the earth. The English guardian of the kingdom fled before him, and thus encouraged, the Scottish people revolted everywhere, and fell upon the English without mercy. The Earl of Surrey, by the King's commands, raised all the power of the border counties, and two English armies poured into Scotland. Only one chief, in the face of those armies, stood by Wallace, who, with a force of forty thousand men, awaited the invaders at a place on the river Forth, within two miles of Stirling. Across the river there was only one poor wooden bridge, called the Bridge of Kildeen, so narrow that but two men could cross it abreast. With his eyes upon this bridge, Wallace posted the greater part of his men among some rising grounds, and waited calmly. When the English army came up on the opposite bank of the river, messengers were sent forward to offer terms. Wallace sent them back with a defiance, in the name of the freedom of Scotland. Some of the officers of the Earl of Surrey in command of the English, with their eyes also on the bridge, advised him to be discreet and not hasty. He, however, urged to immediate battle by some other officers, and particularly by Cressingham, King Edward's treasurer, and a rash man, gave the word of command to advance. One thousand English crossed the bridge, two abreast, the Scottish troops were as motionless as stone images. Two thousand English crossed, three thousand, four thousand, five. Not a feather all this time had been seen to stir among the Scottish bonnets. Now they all fluttered. "'Forward, one party, to the foot of the bridge!' cried Wallace, "'and let no more English cross. The rest, down with me on the five thousand who have come over, and cut them all to pieces.' It was done in the sight of the whole remainder of the English army, who could give no help. Cressingham himself was killed, and the Scotch made whips for the horses of his skin. King Edward was abroad at this time, and during the successes on the Scottish side which followed, and which enabled bold Wallace to win the whole country back again, and even to ravage the English borders. But after a few winter months the king returned, and took the field with more than his usual energy. One night, when a kick from his horse, as they both lay on the ground together, broke two of his ribs, and a cry arose that he was killed, he leaped into his saddle, regardless of the pain he suffered, and rode through the camp. Day then appearing, he gave the word, still, of course, in that bruised and aching state, forward, and led his army on to near Falkirk, where the Scottish forces were seen drawn up on some stony ground behind a morass. Here he defeated Wallace, and killed fifteen thousand of his men. With the shattered remainder, Wallace drew back to Stirling, but, being pursued, set fire to the town that it might give no help to the English, and escaped. The inhabitants of Perth afterwards set fire to their houses for the same reason, and the king, unable to find provisions, was forced to withdraw his army. Another Robert Bruce, the grandson of him who had disputed the Scottish crown with Balliol, was now in arms against the king, that elder Bruce being dead, and also John Comyn, Balliol's nephew. These two young men might agree in opposing Edward, but could agree in nothing else, as they were rivals for the throne of Scotland. Probably it was because they knew this, and knew what troubles must arise, even if they could hope to get the better of the great English king, that the principal Scottish people applied to the Pope for his interference. The Pope, on the principle of losing nothing for want of trying to get it, very coolly claimed that Scotland belonged to him, but this was a little too much, and the Parliament in a friendly manner told him so. In the springtime of the year 1303, the king sent Sir John Seagrave, whom he made governor of Scotland, with twenty thousand men, to reduce the rebels. Sir John was not as careful as he should have been, 
but encamped at Roslyn, near Edinburgh, with his army divided into three parts. The Scottish forces saw their advantage, fell on each part separately, defeated each, and killed all the prisoners. Then came the king himself once more, as soon as a great army could be raised. He passed through the whole north of Scotland, laying waste whatsoever came in his way, and he took up his winter quarters at Dunfermline. The Scottish cause now looked so hopeless that Comyn and the other nobles made submission and received their pardons. Wallace alone stood out. He was invited to surrender, though on no distinct pledge that his life should be spared, but he still defied the ireful king, and lived among the steep crags of the highland glens, where the eagles made their nests, and where the mountain torrents roared, and the white snow was deep, and the bitter winds blew round his unsheltered head, as he lay through many a pitch-dark night, wrapped up in his plaid. Nothing could break his spirit, nothing could lower his courage, nothing could induce him to forget or to forgive his country's wrongs. Even when the castle of Stirling, which had long held out, was besieged by the king with every kind of military engine then in use, even when the lead upon cathedral roofs was taken down to help to make them, even when the king, though an old man, commanded in the siege as if he were a youth, being so resolved to conquer, even when the brave garrison, then found with amazement to be not two hundred people, including several ladies, were starved and beaten out, and were made to submit on their knees, and with every form of disgrace that could aggravate their sufferings, even then, when there was not a ray of hope in Scotland, William Wallace was as proud and firm as if he had beheld the powerful and relentless Edward lying dead at his feet. Who betrayed William Wallace in the end is not quite certain. That he was betrayed, probably by an attendant, is too true. He was taken to the castle of Dumbarton, under Sir John Menteith, and thence to London, where the great fame of his bravery and resolution attracted immense concourses of people to behold him. He was tried in Westminster Hall, with a crown of laurel on his head. It is supposed because he was reported to have said that he ought to wear, or that he would wear, a crown there, and was found guilty as a robber, a murderer, and a traitor. What they called a robber, he said to those who tried him, he was, because he had taken spoil from the king's men. What they called a murderer, he was, because he had slain an insolent Englishman. What they called a traitor, he was not, for he had never sworn allegiance to the king, and had ever scorned to do it. He was dragged at the tails of horses to West Smithfield, and there hanged on a high gallows, torn open before he was dead, beheaded, and quartered. His head was set upon a pole on London Bridge, his right arm was sent to Newcastle, his left arm to Berwick, his legs to Perth and Aberdeen. But if King Edward had had his body cut into inches, and had sent every separate inch to a separate town, he could not have dispersed it half so far and wide as his fame. Wallace will be remembered in songs and stories, while there are songs and stories in the English tongue, and Scotland will hold him dear, while her lakes and mountains last. Released from this dreaded enemy, the king made a fairer plan of government for Scotland, divided the offices of honour among Scottish gentlemen and English gentlemen, forgave past offences, and thought in his old age that his work was done. But he deceived himself. Coleman and Bruce conspired, and made an appointment to meet at Dumfries, in the church of the Minorites. There is a story that Coleman was false to Bruce, and had informed against him to the king, that Bruce was warned of his danger, and the necessity of flight, by receiving one night as he sat at supper, from his friend the Earl of Gloucester, twelve pennies and a pair of spurs, that as he was riding angrily to keep his appointment, through a snowstorm, with his horse's shoes reversed, that he might not be tracked, he met an evil-looking serving-man, a messenger of Comyn, whom he killed, and concealed in whose dress he found letters that proved Comyn's treachery. However this may be, they were likely enough to quarrel in any case, being hot-headed rivals, and whatever they quarrelled about, they certainly did quarrel in the church where they met, and Bruce drew his dagger and stabbed Comyn, who fell upon the pavement. When Bruce came out, pale and disturbed, the friends who were waiting for him asked, what was the matter? I think I have killed Comyn, said he. You only think so? returned one of them. I will make sure. And going into the church, and finding him alive, stabbed him again 
and again. Knowing that the king would never forgive this new deed of violence, the party then declared Bruce king of Scotland, got him crowned at Scone, without the chair, and set up the rebellious standard once again. When the king heard of it he kindled with fiercer anger than he had ever shown yet. He caused the Prince of Wales and two hundred and seventy of the young nobility to be knighted. The trees in the temple gardens were cut down to make room for their tents, and they watched their armor all night, according to the old usage, some in the temple church, some in Westminster Abbey, and at the public feast which then took place, he swore by heaven, and by two swans covered with gold network, which his minstrels placed upon the table, that he would avenge the death of Comyn, and would punish the false Bruce. And before all the company he charged the prince his son, in case that he should die before accomplishing his vow, not to... Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.